0: Welcome to a great big city news episode 59 today a bleaker street getaway and groundbreaking for the subway visit a great slash support to learn how to support New York City local news and allow us to keep bringing you this podcast if you're a New York based business and would be interested in sponsoring our podcast Visit agreatbigcity.com slash advertising to see our newly discounted rates for the duration of the coronavirus shutdown. I am Trace Gilton, founder of A Great Big City. The impact of the coronavirus on the city has only gotten worse over the past week. It continues to climb and hasn't reached an apex yet. As of April 2nd, there were more than 92,000 cases in New York State and nearly 52,000 cases within New York City itself. As always, that number is the cumulative total of cases and includes mild cases that were diagnosed as positive, but around 80% of the time don't require hospitalization. And those people are able to self-quarantine at home and recover. The absolute best defense may seem strange, because you're not doing anything, but staying at home. Putting that physical distance between people is the only defense we have at the moment. Making sure that you don't touch shared surfaces in public and then touch your face. And as of this week, Mayor de Blasio recommends wearing a face covering when going outside. Not the professional kinds of masks that a hospital would use but merely something that would prevent droplets from hitting your mouth and nose if they were coughed or sneezed by someone else. It's not even as simple as identifying someone who looks sick, because even though the disease is still being studied, it seems that individuals that are infected with the actual virus can spread the virus at least two days before they even begin showing symptoms. So someone who was feeling fine and not showing any outward signs of infection may have visited the bodega right before you and touched the door handle or picked up something to look at it. So it's important to keep washing your hands after being in any type of public space. A virus isn't really alive like a bacteria, so it's merely the mechanical scrubbing of your hands and the soap that you use that can separate the virus from your hands and prevent it from entering your body through your mouth or nose, or even your eyes if you touch those with your hands. Now that New Yorkers will be wearing face coverings, be sure you also know how to properly wash and take care when taking those off when you get home. If particles did hit the mask when you were out in public, they're now on the outside surface of the mask. So take off the fabric or cloth mask that you were wearing, put it in a location to be washed, and then wash your hands afterwards. So that's the current situation. If you heard my opening monologue on the coronavirus from last week, you know that I'm concerned with what comes after the shutdown. Right now, we're extending social distancing measures to ensure that the virus doesn't keep spreading among the population. And eventually there will be a vaccine available. To prevent you from getting infected, And those thousands of people who have been infected and had mild cases or even covered from severe cases are also thought to be immune to the disease. But it is hard to tell what will happen in between, the time when a reliable vaccine would be made available to normally healthy people, so that it could cover a large percentage of the community, or how long we will be relegated to wearing masks, even once the economy does reach a place where it can restart in the city and the streets won't be empty anymore, but full of people again. There may be changes in the way the city even functions on a day-to-day basis. Although small business loans are being made available, there are businesses that won't survive this shutdown. And even though if you've lived in a neighborhood in New York long enough, you've seen a lot of storefronts change. There may even be changes in the ways that the remaining businesses function. New York has always relied on delivery services for food and laundry, and sometimes even groceries. But will all of those become even more common now? Many restaurants that no longer have their dining areas available have had to start up delivery services or pickup windows as they scramble to remain in business during the shutdown and also comply with social distancing rules. So while the suburbs may have drive throughs New York restaurants may continue to have pickup windows for quite a while now. After the success of bars being able to offer pre-mixed drinks in takeaway containers, Glass bottles with colorful liquids and handmade labels may remain the norm at bars and liquor stores. For those of us that remember a time before the shutdown, you may remember that drones and delivery robots were talked about, but didn't develop in time for this shutdown, but but still may become common in New York at some point in the future. If a business doesn't shut down, it may even change the structure of the business work from home was a relatively rare option and and mainly condensed around tech jobs but now a city that's defined by giant skyscrapers filled with offices may not need that office space back if companies have now found that employees are able to work from home with no real change in productivity and an increase in comfort for their employees will schools continue to offer distance learning Even if the entire school system doesn't move online, the coronavirus shutdown caused a massive experiment in students being able to learn from home. In what might have previously been a years long debate about contracts for software and and supplying proper hardware to students at home was now pieced together within a matter of days, with teachers performing a massive task of putting together lesson plans that are now well adapted to being taught online. Even if it was just one or two days a week, would the school system become more online also? Could students from across the city simultaneously connect with a teacher in any part of the city to learn a specialized lesson? And could professionals come online and give online lessons to an entire student body, giving an in-person look at their business or place of work that would be far larger than any field trip class? New York's first confirmed cases of coronavirus were on March 1st and March 3rd. And stay-at-home orders began on March 12th when gatherings over 500 people were banned. And on March 20th, a statewide stay-at-home order was enacted. Which means that under perfect conditions, we're now right at the 14-day span of staying at home which all things considered will also hopefully mean we'll begin to see the effects of staying at home and maintaining a six-foot distance from each other those who would have gotten sick in the past 14 days won't be in hospitals they never even caught the disease those who would have felt fine and been out in public unknowingly spreading the disease to more and more people who would also begin spreading hasn't happened and everyone who had the discipline to stay six feet away, to move over when they were on the sidewalk, even if it felt extremely strange in a city like New York. Those who chose to bike around the city if they were able instead of pack onto a crowded subway, well, you've all done your part. This is a once in a lifetime event and I really do mean it when I say thanks for being part of a great big city. Hopefully these monologues on the coronavirus won't need to become a standard feature of the podcast, but for the foreseeable future, I'll likely be including this segment at the top of the show. If nothing else, than as a way to document a historic event. The podcast today will still be missing its upcoming events sections because there are no upcoming events, but a new addition this week is the AGBC voicemail line, where you can share your thoughts on how you're making your way through the coronavirus shutdown. Call or text 646-470-2464 and your message may be shared on the next podcast. A special thanks goes out this week for the increased support that A Great Big City has seen via subscriptions and individual contributions. Sadly, it's still below the overall goal of completely supporting the site and allowing it to grow. So visit agreatbigcity.com slash support to make a one-time contribution of any amount or an ongoing subscription for as low as $2.12 per month. Coming up, This Week in History. 69 years ago on March 29, 1951, the Mad Bomber begins his largest streak of attacks, planning a series of explosive devices in public spaces across New York. The Mad Bomber had first attacked as far back as November 1940 with an explosive simply placed on a windowsill of a Con Edison power plant on 64th Street. But as the 1951 string of bombings began, his targets expanded to many New York City landmarks. George Metesky, who would eventually be caught and identified as the Mad Bomber, began choosing public spaces for the bombs, and according to the New York Times, his targets included phone booths, storage lockers and restrooms in public buildings including Grand Central Terminal five times, Penn Station five times, Radio City Music Hall three times, the New York Public Library twice, the Port Authority Bus Terminal twice, and the RCA building as well as in the subway. Mateske would also cut the fabric in the seats of movie theaters and insert small explosive devices. In all, the Mad Bomber planted 33 bombs, of which 22 exploded. Some bombs were seen as possible scare devices not intended to explode, and others simply caused property damage and startled people nearby. The Mad Bomber's explosions resulted in 15 injuries and thankfully no deaths. Based on handwriting and the bomber's focus on Con Edison, Authorities were able to identify him as George Metesky, and he was arrested in January 1957 at his home in Waterbury, Connecticut. He was found legally insane and committed to the Mattawan Hospital for the criminally insane. Metesky had blamed his treatment at Con Edison for his resulting tuberculosis, and his anger at this incident had fueled his bombings, but in a strange twist of fate, his disease cleared up during his time in the mental hospital and he lived long enough to be released 16 years later and lived 20 more years in Waterbury, Connecticut, dying aged 90 in 1994. 111 years ago on March 30, 1909, the Queensborough Bridge opens to vehicular traffic. While the Brooklyn Bridge may be a backdrop to vacation photos worldwide, no other New York City bridge hits as close to the heart when it comes to the name used for a certain borough connecting structure. Whether it's the Queensboro Bridge, the 59th Street Bridge, the Ed Koch Bridge, or even Blackwells Island Bridge, the name that someone uses for the bridge can usually give a good indication of which generation they grew up in New York. On opening day, the bridge was regaled as one of the greatest structures in the world and would hold the title of longest cantilever span in North America until 1917. At a cost approaching $20 million at the time, the bridge opened with an array of road surfaces, trolley tracks, train tracks, and walking paths. Of great concern during the construction was the amount of weight that the bridge could safely hold, and changes in the design were made to bring the weight down. 10,000 onlookers gathered at the Manhattan side as Mayor McClellan drove his automobile from City Hall to Midtown and crossed the bridge, meeting Queensboro officials in the middle. After the mayor returned to Manhattan, the police let the crowd free and many rushed to be the first to walk across the bridge. The New York Tribune from March 31, 1909 mentioned that the mayor had to buy a toll ticket at the Manhattan side of the bridge so there was originally a toll to cross the bridge. Although there's been talk of reinstating a toll on the bridge, all the East River bridges continue to remain free, including under any known upcoming congestion pricing plans. 99 years ago on April 1st, 1921, a Greenwich Village chase after an armed robbery at a Bleecker street jewelry store. Mr. Alex Kipnis was manning his jewelry store at 320 Bleecker Street when a gang of four armed youths stormed in and tried to rob the store. The gang may have seen this as an easy target, but Mr. Kipnis wasn't taking the threat lightly. The 55-year-old picked up an empty display case and hurled it at the robbers. That was successful in making the gang retreat, but not before three of the four young men fired their revolvers at Mr. Kipnis with one bullet striking him in the arm. The remaining boy struck Mr. Kipnis on the head with the butt of his pistol. The gunfire drew the attention of police and neighborhood residents, and thankfully Mr. Hector Undino looked across the street from his own shop and saw the gang flee. He took chase and trailed the group from the opposite side of the street, watching as they tried to hide their weapons in a trash barrel and split up into two groups. Mr. Undino was able to find a police officer and point out two of the robbers, but the other two slipped away into crowds on Grove Street. After being apprehended, the two robbers were found to not speak English, but gave their names as Camillo Lasaya and Attilo DeMarco through an interpreter. It's unclear how long Mr. Kipnis' store remained at the location, but today if you go to Bleecker Street just north of Grove Street, you'll find Andrade Shoe Repair in what looks to be the same building from 1921. Click through the link in the show notes to read the full article from the time in the Evening World newspaper. 120 years ago on March 24, 1900, Mayor Van Wick holds a groundbreaking ceremony to begin subway construction. City officials... A thousand police officers and a huge group of onlookers gathered outside City Hall on a Saturday afternoon to witness the celebration. A New York Times article from the time paints a lively scene of crowds gathered and the comments delivered as city officials dug into the ground with a sterling silver shovel made by Tiffany and Company. Members of the crowd pushed forward and tried to grab dirt and pieces of rocks from the excavated break in the sidewalk in front of City Hall and Mayor Van Wick even gathered the first shovel full of dirt into his new silk hat. Real work on the Interboro Rapid Transit System would begin later that week and would open four years later, on October 27, 1904. Five years ago on April 2, 2015, two women are arrested in Jamaica, Queens for planning terrorist bombings. The former roommates had accumulated bomb-making materials, but had not yet selected a target, and each woman seemed to pledge allegiance to a different terrorist organization. Investigators reportedly found three propane gas tanks, soldering tools, pipes, a pressure cooker, fertilizer, flux, detailed handwritten notes on the recipes of bomb-making, and extensive jihadist literature while executing search warrants. The two women were initially charged with conspiring to use a weapon of mass destruction and pleaded guilty in 2019 to charges of teaching and distributing information about the manufacturer and use of an explosive, destructive device, and weapon of mass destruction. 161 years ago on April 4, 1859, the Civil War anthem, Dixie, debuts in New York as part of a blackface minstrel show. The debut was held at Bryant's Minstrel Theater at 472 Broadway, which today is part of Soho. The song would go on to become both one of Abraham Lincoln's favorite songs and the de facto anthem of the Confederate South, sometimes with altered lyrics. Songwriter Daniel Decatur Emmett reportedly told a fellow minstrel that, quote, If I had known to what use they were going to put my song, I'll be damned if I'd have written it, The song was played at the inauguration of Confederate President Jefferson Davis in 1861 and Lincoln requested the song be played again after accepting the Confederacy's surrender five years later. In the land of cotton, old times are and not forgotten. Look away, look away, look away, land. in Dixieland. Where I was born in early on, one frosty morning. Look away, look away, look away, land. When was in Dixieland.
1: hooray, hooray,
0: 87 years ago on April 4, 1933, the USS Akron, one of history's largest airships, crashes into the ocean off the coast of New Jersey, killing 73 people and leaving three survivors. The 785-foot-long airship was an airborne aircraft carrier, able to launch and receive fighter planes via a trapeze system and trap doors on its bottom side. It crashed into the ocean after storms and violent wind gusts pushed it too near the water, and its lower rear fin was torn off when it hit the water surface. Another smaller Navy blimp also crashed while searching for survivors, killing two of the seven crew on board. New Jersey would also be the site of the Hindenburg disaster just four years later and ten miles away from the USS Akron crash site. As a result of the Akron's crash, its sister blimp was equipped with adequate life vest and inflatable lifeboats, and only two members were killed when it suffered a crash into the Pacific Ocean two years later. 47 years ago, on April 4th, 1973, the twin towers of the original World Trade Center officially opened, becoming the tallest buildings in the world. Groundbreaking had taken place seven years earlier, but the construction of Towers 1 and 2 was delayed until 1968 and 1969 respectively while the site was excavated and a wall was constructed to prevent water intrusion from the nearby Hudson River The towers had topped out and tenants had begun moving in but April the 4th marked the ribbon cutting ceremony that officially opened the towers Construction required raising 13 square blocks of lower Manhattan that included a section of electronics retailers known as Radio Row. The towers would remain the world's tallest until the completion of the Sears Tower in Chicago, just one year later, and they would remain standing twenty-eight years until the September eleventh attacks. And fifty-three years ago, on April 4th, 1967, Martin Luther King Jr. delivers a speech at Riverside Church in Morningside Heights, titled, Beyond Vietnam, A Time to Break Silence. The speech proved controversial as it associated the civil rights movement with the anti-war movement.
1: It seemed as if there was a real promise of hope for the poor, both black and white, through the poverty program. There were experiments, hopes, new beginnings. Then came the build-up in Vietnam, and I watched this program broken and disintegrated, as if it were some idle political plaything of a society gone mad on war. And I knew that America would never invest the necessary funds or energies in rehabilitation of its poor. So long as adventures like Vietnam continue to draw men and skills and money like some demonic destructive suction tube, so I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and to attack it as such.
0: Martin Luther King would be assassinated exactly one year later to the day in Memphis, Tennessee. Park of the Day Hafen Park on Burke Avenue in the Bronx Named after Louis F. Hafen, the first borough president of the Bronx In 1996, Hafen Park received new modular play equipment including slides, clatter bridges, and ladders and also underwent safety improvements and repaving In 2006, a $1.2 million reconstruction project included the installation of a new synthetic turf field for both baseball and soccer and a refurbished ball field fence. Here's something you may not have known about New York. You can take a free training course from the Department of Health to learn the right words to say to someone who is suffering with mental distress or substance abuse. The free eight hour training is made possible by the Thrive NYC initiative. Extreme highs and lows for this week in weather history. On March 29, 1945, there was a record high of 86 degrees. And on March 29th, 1923, a record low of just 10 degrees. Weather for the week ahead? Cloudy with light rain possible throughout the week. With temperatures rising in the 60s and falling down as low as 38 degrees next Friday. Thanks for listening to A Great Big City. Follow along 24 hours a day on social media at A Great Big City or email contact at A Great Big City with any news, feedback, or topic suggestions. If you'd like to call in and leave a message or respond to something you've heard on the podcast, call the AGBC voicemail line at 646 470 2464. Subscribe to A Great Big City News wherever you listen to podcasts iTunes, Google Play, Player FM spotify tune in radio or listen to each episode on the podcast pages at greatbigcitycom slash podcast if you enjoy the show subscribe and leave a review wherever you're listening and visit our podcast site to see show notes and extra links for each episode our intro and outro music is start the day by lee rosphere and the opening monologue music is at hotline.gov by Anonymous420 Thanks for being part of a great big city.